Welcome to episode 32 of Mike's Notes. Today, we're going to business school with Michael Mobison. I use the business school analogy for the introduction to this episode because Michael Mobison is a professor at Columbia Business School. And he was also on the Masters in Business podcast with Barry Ritholtz, which in some ways is like business class in and of itself, where Ritholtz brings in these wonderful, wonderful guests who talk about different areas where they're experts in or where they have experience in, and you get to learn from them, which is really amazing. The fact that this on-demand media we call podcasts is available to stream right to your iPhone or your Android device or your laptop just really blows my mind. It's really incredible. And in the Mobison interview, Ritholtz and he cover a lot of ground. They cover a lot of big ideas that I wanted to touch on. Not sure how long this episode is going to be today. I wrote a blog post that has a lot of the same material in it, and that blog post landed at about 5,000 words. That's 20 pages in a book. So we'll get started with this episode, and if you want more, you can check the notes where the blog posts will be linked to. Ready? One. Know the pot and the payout. That is, you have to know the odds of something and then how much you'll earn if that thing comes about. This is what Mobison has to say. Quote, if you're a handicapper and you want to make money, there are two things that are important. One is how fast the horse is going to run, the fundamentals. Second is the odds on the tote board. The way you make money isn't picking a winner. The way you make money is picking mispriced odds. That idea really carries over to investing. I think as investors, many of us blur these two things, end quote. So Mobison here is pointing out that we need to look at more than just the stock price of a stock or how big the pot in a game of poker is or what you can earn if you do something, whatever that something is. You also need to look at the odds of that thing happening. Jeff DeGraff put it in similar terms as far as poker goes. Quote, if the opportunity to stay in the pot is low enough and the reward is high enough, absolutely stay in. Even though there might be a very slim chance of pulling a straight, the chance to stay in makes an awful lot of sense. End quote. Uh, Charlie Munger also talks about this idea of knowing how much it costs to stay in and what the odds are and how much you can win. And this is what Munger wrote about it. Quote, any damn fool can see that a horse carrying a lightweight with a wonderful win rate and a good position, etc., etc., is way more likely to win than a horse with a terrible record and extra weight and so on and so on. But if you look at the odds, the bad horse pays 100 to 1, whereas the good horse pays 3 to 2. Then it's not clear which is statistically the better bet using the mathematics of Fermat and Pascal, end quote. So Munger here is pointing out that you don't always just try to pick a winner. Sometimes you want to pick something that has better odds. This can be hard to wrap our brains around sometimes because we know that a sure thing with long odds is rare, but it's also a good idea. Those are the asymmetrical uh, payoffs. Those are situations where we can win a lot but only lose a little. Life is often a lot more complicated than that. We have to get into gray areas where we have to ask, is this bet worth it based on the odds of it happening and the payoff? A lot of times, personally at least, 
my initial reaction isn't to think through things, which is the whole point of the first point of what Mobison has to say. We want to get to the point where we consider what the options are rather than immediately reacting. Cliff, Cliff Asness is a famed hedge fund investor. And in his conversation with Tyler Cowen, he addressed this. And this is what Asness had to say. Quote, I want to ask one of my two older kids, does this merger arbitrage sound like a good idea to you? There's about a 98% chance they'll say no. That sounds like a terrible idea to me. You can lose a lot. You can make a little. Who wants to do that? I'd be the proudest pop on earth if either of them kind of paused and said, how often do both of those things happen, Dad? Because that's the proper question, end quote. So Asnes here is explaining to Cowan that merger arbitrage is where you see two companies are going to form, whether one company is buying another, or they're merging, or there's bankruptcy, or something. And the idea behind mergers is that the stock price, the value of the companies, will come together to a common price. So if one company is trading at 80, and another company is trading at 100, maybe the price will go to 90. Maybe it'll be a case where a synergetic effect happens, and the price will go up to 110. But the price will converge to something if the deal goes through. But there's a small chance that the deal goes through. So if you are in Asnes's position and you are doing these merger arbitrages, then you are betting a lot to only make a little. But you stand to lose a lot if the deal doesn't happen. It doesn't happen very often, but occasionally a deal will fall through and that you bet that the price would converge, the price actually goes in different directions on both sides. But what we want is the pause. We want to think about it. We don't want to immediately react. Sometimes long shot bets are worth placing if the cost is low, and sometimes almost certain bets, like merger arbitrage, are worth placing even if the cost is high. Most things are somewhere in the middle, but we need to consider both parts. What is the pot? That is, how much can you win? And what are the odds for each thing happening? And if you know those two things, you can start to do some relatively simple mathematics to figure out. This gets harder the more people are doing it. And this is the second thing that Mobison points out. He calls this the paradox of skill. And he says, quote, If the people who are less capable are walking away from the poker table, who's left? End quote. As my dad used to say, if you look around and can't tell who the fool is, it's you. This paradox that Mobison points out is that when people leave the game, that is when the participants remaining dwindle, and as they presumably become more and more skilled, it's harder and harder to succeed, and you need more and more luck. That's the paradox. As skill goes up, luck goes up too. It's sort of like in uh, the NFL versus college football. In the NFL, there are fewer players of higher skill, and luck plays a larger role. Whereas in college football, you have a, a situation where the more talented team tends to win more often. That's a situation where the skill of those players predominates rather than the luck of the situation. Burton Malkiel pointed out how this exists in the stock market. Malkiel is a proponent of index investing because he says it's too hard to get ahead there now. This is what he said to Barry Ritholtz in a different episode of Masters in Business. Quote, the problem is as the market gets more and more professional, when people are better trained, when people have better sources of information, it's then harder and harder to actually beat the market. End quote. So you're competing against the best of the best when this pyramid reaches its apex. 
Nate Silver said that he stopped playing online poker because of exactly this. In the early days of online poker, Silver explained, there were a lot of little fish. There were people who weren't very good, who were killing time at their jobs, or who thought they could make money. There was easy pickings. But as online poker grew in popularity and those easy fish started to die out as their bank accounts dried out, it became harder and harder to win more money. Stephen Jay Gould calls this the right wall effect and explains how it works in distributions like batting average. Gould wrote that um, the average batting average in Major League Baseball has stayed pretty level over time. It's risen slightly and dipped a little bit as there's rule changes in the game. For example, when the pitcher's mound was elevated, batting averages went down. And when other uh, tweaks to the rules have been made, batting average moves a little bit. But for the most part, it's been consistent over time. But we don't see 400 hitters like Ted Williams anymore, Gould says, because the competition has reached that apex of the pyramid. The people playing baseball nowadays are better than the people that were playing baseball 40 years ago. And so we're getting this constrained distribution where if you can imagine a standard distribution which looks like a camel's hump, we're squeezing the ends in so we don't have these fat tails that exist. And those are where hitters like Ted Williams used to live as 400 hitters. We'll probably never see that again Gould writes, because of the elevation in talent. There's more talented people involved. After he was fired by the Philadelphia 76ers, Sam Hinkie wrote a uh, farewell letter to the members of the 76ers board, the people who oversaw the team, and that letter eventually got leaked to the public. It was full of many great gems, but one of them was Hinkie's recognition of this idea, of this apex of the pyramid um, being and constraining opportunities. This is what Hinky wrote. Quote, Opportunities in a constrained environment winnow away with each person that agrees with you. It reminds me of when we first moved to Palo Alto. Within about a week of living there, a voice kept telling me, this is great. Great weather, 30 minutes to the ocean, 3 hours to ski, a vibrant city 30 miles away, and one of the world's best research universities within walking distance. People should really move here. Then I looked at real estate prices. I was right, yes, but this view was decidedly a non-consensus view. My viewpoint as a Silicon Valley real estate dilettante, which took a whole week to form, had been priced in. Shocker. End quote. So Hinky here recognizes that as people start to think a certain way, as people approach that apex of skill and opinion and talent, that there's less variation and you have to get lucky to find good real estate in Palo Alto, because the level of skill is really high. Two. Incentives matter a lot when getting people to do things. Mobison was once asked to suggest a better research technique for a company in evaluating uh, stock valuations. Mobison proposed that the research team be split into two based on the two things we looked in number one. One group works on one area, one group works on another. One group figures out the odds, the other figures out the pot size. And then they bring those two groups together at the end and you get a general uh, balanced analysis of what a company might really be worth. And Mobison says at the end, quote, they kind of said, that's a cool idea, see you later. It didn't go very far, end quote. 
Mobison's idea was probably good, but the people listening weren't incentivized to try it, and incentives are a powerful force. Charlie Munger says that, quote, what wins in human affairs are incentives, end quote. And this is Munger's favorite story. Uh, he says that Federal Express was built around having all of their packages come together in a central place in the middle of the night, and then getting those packages out to different geographic areas immediately afterwards. And the problem was is that they were always screwing up and they weren't on time, and one small delay in one area would have a domino effect down the line. It would delay shipments to a bunch of other areas. Eventually, Federal Express realized that they were incentivizing people the wrong way. What they were trying to do was paying them for a shift in time, and that wasn't working. Once they switched to shifts based on work, that they could go home when X number of packages had been filtered, then their problems cleared up overnight. The incentives for the people weren't to hustle and to get the packages in the right way. Their incentive was just to show up and collect a check. When Federal Express shifted the emphasis to you can go home when the right work is done, then all of the work started to be done on time and it was a much smoother machine. When Mobison suggested switching up the research um, for this company, he was suggesting that they change the process by which they had been using. And the managers weren't incentivized to do this because you're only incentivized to change something, to do something different when things aren't going well. I just finished the History of Coca-Cola book, and what's amazing about that is how common Coke's strategies was over time. Because Coca-Cola was the market leader in so many areas, they were really consistent with their advertising and their product development and the different ways they rolled out things and how they dealt with bottlers. And part of that book talks about their competition with Pepsi-Cola, and Pepsi was really different because Pepsi could experiment and try different things and have different marketing campaigns and different systems and different cola flavors than Coke could because they weren't in the lead. The incentives for the Pepsi executives were to try something, sometimes try anything, to get market share for Coca-Cola, whereas the Coca-Cola executives were incentivized to keep market share and to grow market share. So those two different systems, the way that they were set up between the two different companies, um, influenced how those executives made their decisions. And both company executives did pretty well, but the background to them was, was different. The scenery of their different plays and how they had to act forced them into different roles. A profession that's had this examined a lot, this idea of incentives, is football. And specifically, what do you do on fourth down? Some coaches, most coaches, punt the ball or kick a field goal because that's how they were trained, that's how they were brought up, that's their experience coaching football. And some coaches go for it on foot down, fourth down. One of the more famous ones of these coaches is Kevin Kelly, who coaches uh, a high school football team. And there's a lot of videos online of Kelly, but one that I liked the most was when Kelly says that he thought he would come in and the paper would call him a crazy nut job coach who goes for it on fourth down. And that's the impression, that's the incentive. Don't be a crazy nut job, especially when things are going well. If you're doing well, don't rock the boat. 
Toward the end of his interview with Ritholtz, Mobison comes back to this idea as it relates to sports, and this is what he says, quote, This remains remark remarkably pervasive. They're still doing things that don't make a lot of sense. A lot of it is people grew up with the sport. They can't expand their view, end quote. People aren't thinking different. People are thinking in the same patterns. People are incentivized to act way, one way and not another way. Sports, we need to remember, are not always incentivized by winning. We think of sports as about winning because that gets reported, but sports have a lot of different incentives in them. There are about reputations and attitudes and attendance figures and feelings and ego and other things that are hard to measure. If sports were only about winning and losing, then GMs like Sam Hinkie would probably still have a job. In episode three of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast, he looks at this very thing. Wilt Chamberlain refused to shoot his free throws underhand, even though it made him a better shooter. But Chamberlain didn't like the way he looked. Sports isn't always about winning. When the 76ers fired Sam Hinkie, it was about more than basketball. Hinkie wasn't trying to win in the traditional way. He could be bad, but not as bad as he was. I thought the system he was using was good. It was in line with some of the ideas we looked at in this podcast. But the incentives were for him to win a certain way, to look a certain way, to face the media in a certain way. And Hinky didn't do those things. And so Hinky lost his job. His situation reminded me of when Bill Belichick was the Cleveland Browns head coach. Neither Hinky nor Belichick was great with the media and their incentives were to focus on creating the right football system rather than to create the right football system that also had the appearance of what people expected. Belichick's demise began when he cut quarterback Bernie Kosar. This quote is from the book, The Education of a Coach. Quote, on Monday, November 8, they cut him, and they did it with a certain brutality. As Belichick spoke of Kosar's diminished skills, for Cleveland, the unthinkable had happened. He had cut their favorite son, end quote. Notice the emotional language that's in that short uh, two sentences from David Haberstam's book. He had cut their favorite son. Sports is about more than just winning. If the Cleveland Browns fans had been focused only on winning, they wouldn't have um, cared so much about Kosar. Um, imagine who they're doubting here. This was before Bill Belichick became Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots, but he still had a really good resume. He had uh, been considered a defensive mastermind when he worked with Bill Parcells for, and coached the New York Giants to two Super Bowls. Belichick's father was a long-tenured assistant coach who had a lot of success in the college ranks. Bill Belichick was someone who no one outworked. This is from the same book and what an early peer had to say of Belichick. Quote, I think a lot of it came from the fact that he had not played big-time football, and because of that, he felt he had to work twice as hard as anyone else to prove himself, to prove his bona fides. He was someone who was simply not going to be denied, end quote. That's the guy the Cleveland Browns fired a week after the owner moved the team to Baltimore. That's the guy who the fans chanted must go for each home game after Kosar was canned. Incentives in sports go way beyond winning, and incentives matter. We have to remember this. If Sam Hinkie had been incentivized at some level, whether it was uh, through the work that he did or the people that were 
supervising him to be better with the media, to talk about the process, to do the process in a little different way. I think he would have still had a job. If Bill Belichick had been incentivized to deal with the media in a better way, he probably would have stayed in Cleveland or with the team as it moved to Baltimore. If the research analysts that Mobison had been talking to were incentivized to change and improve their process, they probably would have done that. Incentives are a powerful motivator. They're a powerful tool for getting people to do different things. And incentives matter, and it's not always the incentive you think is going to matter and make a person change. Three. Mobison also talks about the base rates, and he compares it to the idea of a kitchen model to explain how base rates or the outside view work against what you think or uh, the inside view. The inside view is what you know about your kitchen, the contractor, the job, the situation. And Mobison says, quote, left to our own devices, that's how we solve problems, end quote. We tend to rely on the inside view, what we think is going to happen without consulting any external sources. But then we see our neighbor one day, and he asks about the van sitting in the driveway for the past month. Then we tell him about the kitchen remodel, how it's delayed because of countertops, and our neighbor smirks with an all-knowing grin. Our neighbor knows that remodels tend to take longer and cost more than what we're quoted. He's the outside view. That's the outside view that, in general, If you were to aggregate all the remodels, you would see that they would cost more and take longer than normal. Psychologists have found out, Mobison says, that, quote, introducing the outside view almost invariably improves the quality of decisions, end quote. That is, if we can get that outside view, if we can get the base rate, if we can talk to our neighbor, generally our decisions will be better. The problem is is that we're loafers. It takes a lot of mental effort, first to come up with the outside view, and second to compare it to what we're thinking. You need to figure out the range of outcomes for the kitchen remodel, and then where yours might fit into that range. It could be that you have a great contractor, and that he's got leftover supplies from the previous build, and yours will come in under time and under budget. But it takes a lot of work to get to that conclusion in an accurate manner. One way that we can start to do this better or make it easier for us to do it despite our loafing nature is to include rules or numbers or formulas into our decision-making process. Wobison says, quote, The virtue of basic rules for buying and selling are precisely because you take the emotion out and you're making fundamentals and expectations two separate things, end quote. So here he's addressing it as far as it goes to trading or making investments and getting the emotions... Um, out of it. Emotions are the inside view, rules and numbers are the outside view. And remember, when you're dealing with people, you will always have emotions involved. Intel CEO Andy Grove, who we looked at in a previous episode of this podcast, wrote that, quote, people who have no emotional stake in a decision can see what needs to be done sooner, end quote. That is, the people who see more of the number and rules side um, can see what needs done sooner than you can. It's the old case of the frog in boiling water. When you're in it, when you're in the thick of it, like the frog in water that is slowly brought up to a boil, you don't realize how conditions are changing. But if you can look at it from the outside, if you can see the rules and the numbers, that's more akin to the frog that is put in boiling water and immediately recognizes 
that things aren't quite um, what you want. And these rules and numbers and formulas and base rates and neighbors help because as Grove wrote, quote, confusion engulfs you. In many instances, your personal identity is inseparable from your life work, end quote. So rules and guidelines can really help, especially when we are talking about this kind of emotional investment. It's easy to talk about and listen to this idea of the inside and outside view, but it's much harder to do. The inside and outside view is a simple but not easy system, and to do it well, we need to practice. Luckily, there's an easy way to start this, to get into the habit of it, and, and that's to think about the base, and to remember, it's all about the base. Specifically, we want to look at what's called the base rate. That is what normally happens in this situation. What normally happens when you have a kitchen remodel. Remember Coach Kelly, our football coach that goes for it on fourth down? Do you want to guess the base rate for fourth down conversions of three yards or less? Go ahead, guess. It's 55%. That is 55% of the time in the NFL, if you have to go for it on fourth down with three yards or less, you have better than a coin flip odds. That's really good. That's the base rate. That's the outside view. That's where you can take emotion out of it. Now, you can consider what happens if your team practices this skill and gets better than the base rate? What happens if the other team knows about it and practices against that skill? You can start with the base rate of 55% and move around from there. The great part is all of this data is available at your fingertips. It's available online or through friends or a whole host of other sources. You can figure out expected points based on fourth downs, where they are in the field, and how long you have to go on a simple Google search. A coach can Google whether or not they should go for it on fourth down and see all of the expect to expected point totals online. So we can get to the base rate really, really easy. And we should get to the base rate. We should start at the base rate because of those emotions involved, because of the internal view, and because the people involved in a project tend to be more optimistic about its completion and success than people not involved. This happened to Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman was part of a team of people tasked with writing a new textbook. They began the work in the beginning, and in the beginning it was easy. And you have to remember that in the beginning is always easy. Don't ever extrapolate beginning progress with that of progress for the whole project. Kahneman writes in Thinking Fast and Slow that his team made great progress over the first year, and soon they began to write a part of the textbook about what's called the planning fallacy. Well, thought Kahneman, let's see what this looks like up close. He asked each team member to write down how much longer they thought the book would take to finish. Their collective average was two years. So we have the planning fallacy being written about in a textbook. The people tend to underestimate how long something will take. And so Kahneman is using this exact fallacy in the group of people he's working with. How long do you think it's going to take? Kahneman's average from the group was two years, and he didn't stop there. He wanted to figure out how this two years compared to other groups. So he writes, quote, I turned to Seymour, our curriculum expert, and asked whether he could think of other teams similar to ours that had developed a curriculum from scratch. And Seymour could said he th could think of quite a few. End quote. Okay, so far so good. There's Kahneman's team that's writing this textbook. They think that it's going to take about 
two years, and there's other groups that they could compare to. Next, Kahneman writes, quote, I asked him to think of these teams when they had made as much progress as we had. How long from that point did it take them to finish their textbook projects? He fell silent, end quote. So here we start to see how things may fall apart. So we have other groups that are similar to Kahneman's group and had made similar progress on a text group. And now we're trying to think, how long did it take them to finish? Kahneman continues, quote, I never realized this before. This is what Seymour had said. But in fact, not all the teams at a stage comparable to ours ever did complete their task, end quote. Uh-oh. It turns out that in comparable situations, 40% failed to finish. And of those who finished, none did it in less than seven years. So as Kahneman is explaining what the planning fallacy is in a textbook, his team is making the planning fallacy mistake as they're writing about that very thing. But let's take a moment, let's stop. This group has Daniel freaking Kahneman, a man who would go on to win a Nobel Prize for his work in psychology. Surely a brilliant star can lift a team. Kahneman asks Seymour about this. Quote, I gasped at a straw. When you compare our skills and resources to those of other groups, how good are we? How would you rank us in comparison with these teams? Seymour did not hesitate long this time. We're below average, he said, but not by much. End quote. So Kahneman's team isn't even as good as the other teams. The other teams were only 40% when 40% failed to finish and of the remaining 60% none did it in less than seven years and his team is not quite as good as those. We are cognitive misers. We really don't like to think hard about decisions. We tend to go for default and follow our emotions and do things the way that they've always been done. That's not always the best way to make decisions. In fact, we can often improve on that by including the outside view. The outside view takes a little bit of work, but the easiest place to start is the base rate. What normally happens here? If I write a book, how many books are typically sold by new authors? And the answer is very few. If I try to train for a marathon, how many people drop out of marathon training if they don't have a plan? The answer is probably pretty high. I would guess that the base rate for people without a marathon training plan is awfully high. If I get married to my high school sweetheart, how many of those people are still married after 10 years? And that has a base rate too. Everything has a base rate about how um, often this thing normally happens. And the base rate is good because it takes the emotions out. It gives us the outside view. We don't have to think that our kitchen remodel is going to happen sooner or faster or under budget just because it's ours compared to, you know, the neighbors or someone else's. Base rates also get us around one other problem. The wonderful storytelling monster. Four. And that wonderful storytelling monster is you and me and all of us. This is how Mobison puts it. Quote, once an event occurs, all of us effortlessly and naturally create a narrative to explain that outcome. Two things kick in. The first is hindsight bias. We start to believe we knew what was going to happen with a greater probability than we actually did. And the second thing that happens is creeping determinism, where you start to believe that what happened is the only thing that could have happened. End quote. Here, Mobison is pointing out that after something happens, you and I will come up with a story about 
how and why that happened, and we'll also look back and say, I knew that was going to happen. And in the podcast uh, between Ritholtz and Mobison, they have a good laugh about all the people who predicted the housing crisis, or who predicted Brexit, or who predicted any number of uh, financial events. And they both laugh, and they uh, basically say, if you're so smart, how come you're not so rich? Implying that if you knew what was going to happen, put some money where your mouth is. You didn't really know. And the problem uh, that, that we tend to have, the reason we make up these stories, is that we're not very good at coming up with counterfactuals. That is, we can't think of, or at least I have a hard time thinking of, other things that could have happened. In the podcast, they portray this as looking at a roulette wheel. And you can see there's the black and the green and the red. And so you can see that if it lands on black 13 or whatever, that there were a host of other things that could have happened. Well, in some ways, life is like this. There are a bunch of other things that could have happened. But we uh, have a hard time coming up with those. Since football season is almost here and we've included other football analogies. Let's continue with that theme. This is a nice counterfactual from a 2009 New York Times article. Quote, here's a thought exercise for you. Imagine that for decades no one ever thought of the punt. Teams knew nothing else than to run or pass on fourth down. And then one day it's invented. Some guy comes up to a coach and says, kick the ball on every fourth down and the other team gets possession 37 yards further down the field. The coach would think he was crazy. Wait, you want me to give up one quarter of my opportunities for a four first down on every series just for 35 yards of field position? Do you realize how much that's going to kill our chances of scoring? And that coach would be absolutely right. It's funny how boxed in our thinking can be, except for the most desperate of circumstances or with inches to go just outside a field goal range. Today's NFL coaches will choose to punt, end quote. So that's a great way to frame this boxed in thinking that we can think what if things were done a different way what if there was a different tradition to how this was done another nice quote that uh, shows this is from soccer uh, player and then coach Johan Cruff quote coincidence is logical end quote that is we have these random events that we tend to explain really well in the book the numbers game, why everything you know about soccer is wrong. Chris Anderson and David Sally write, quote, We remember and place undue significance on things that do happen while ignoring those that don't happen, end quote. In soccer, this is easy to see. It's goals. But in other examples, it fits well. We can remember and place significance that the ball landed on black in roulette and underemphasize all of the other things that could have happened, all of the other slots. In soccer, though, we see this as a goal. A goal is salient. A defensive play is not. So why does this matter? So what? Anderson writes, quote, People discount causes that are absent, things that didn't happen, and augment the importance of causes that are present, things that did happen, end quote. This idea is that uh, counterfactuals are tricky, but just because you can't think of something or just because you underweight something doesn't mean you're accurately describing it. We tend to um, be open to counterfactuals if they confirm our self-image and guesses but reject them when they tell us we may be wrong. Philip Tetlock found this in his research on predictions and concluded, quote, experts were open to I was almost right scenarios but rejected I was almost wrong alternatives, end quote. 
That is, when presented with a counterfactual, something that didn't happen that could have, we are open to it if it's very close to what we predicted, but we are close to it if it is far from what we would have guessed. A lovely example of this has been the recent Chuck Klosterman podcast tour for his latest book, But What If We're Wrong? I'm a huge Klosterman fan, and I liked his interview with Russ Roberts the most. If you haven't read Klosterman's book yet, the premise is uh, that we can't predict what will be remembered in any certain time period. Popular music, for example, will be viewed differently in 100 years in the same way that we view music from 100 years ago. This is what Klosterman told Russ Roberts, quote, But for the most part, everything, whether it's music, film, books, whatever the subject may be, culture seems to operate like this over time. You start with a huge field of potential candidates. There are many people who could have been seen as really central to the existence of that art form. And then as time plods along, certain candidates drop by the wayside. They get lost, or they disappear, or their relevance changes, and eventually you get down to only one artist remaining. And then the significance of that artist is kind of amplified and exaggerated. And that person ends up becoming interchangeable with the art form. John Philip Sousa being this example. There were many people creating marches, end quote. So Klosterman here is pointing out that counterfactuals are hard to come up with because we're looking at things in the unknown. If we look back to marching music a hundred years ago, there were many people that were creating marches. But today, if you ask people who created marching music, who wrote marching music, most of them will either say no one or they'll say John Philip Sousa. So now flip this around and project this in the future rather than recall the past. In a hundred years, who will people say was punk music? Was rock music? Who from this era will be remembered in a hundred years? Or will it even be one person? And think about the, all the options that are available in that hundred year period. There are a lot of things. Only one will be true and everything else will be a counterfactual. It will be something else that could have happened if things had gone a different way. It was hard for me to think of counterfactuals, things that could also have been true. I try to consider them in my book, 28 Lessons from Startups That Failed, to look at what did failed companies do that was consistent, and was it different than what big companies did, and a lot of it was the same. There was overlap between what successful startups did and what unsuccessful startups did, and so it was hard to parse out the differences that what made something a success and what made something a failure. Remember the movie The Social Network? Watch that, and you could think there's a recipe for a successful startup. Have a good idea, like a social network. Have a test case, like the Harvard campus. Roll it out slowly and tweak your product, like to different colleges. Have smart people involved. Mark Zuckerberg wasn't is really smart. Tweak the product, get a hoodie, boom. You have a billion-dollar unicorn. But what if other companies do the same thing? Will they succeed? How do you tease out who succeeds and who does not? It's not too difficult to come up with a counterfactual where Facebook is bigger or smaller than they are now. The current position of Facebook is only one of many options that could have happened. We talked about the Facebook phone in past episodes of this podcast, and I guess that had Facebook waited a year to roll out the phone or gone public a year earlier to get cash to subsidize the phone rollout, it probably would have been a lot of success. 
If you look at the apps that are on people's phones now, Facebook controls a lot of those apps in the same way that Google controls a lot of apps that are on Apple phones. So Facebook could have been different. There are a lot of possible versions Facebook could have been, just like there are a lot of possible places for a roulette ball to land. And the Facebook that we see now is only one of many of those. So counterfactuals are out there. There are a lot of them. And they are hard, at least for me, to come up with them. Now, about admitting them and admitting that sometimes we're wrong. On some level, we all know we are wrong. Mobison references Katherine Schultz, and she has a great TED Talk about being wrong. After a funny story to start, this is what she says. Quote, we get it in the abstract, but when it comes down to me, right now, Suddenly, all this abstract appreciation of fallibility goes out the window, and I can't think of anything I'm wrong about, end quote. How great is that? Of course I'm wrong about some things, but if you need me to tell you what I'm wrong about right now, I just can't do it. This podcast is probably wrong about a lot of things. It's probably wrong about the Facebook phone to some degree. It's probably wrong about Yahoo in a pre that we focused on in a previous episode, but those are my best guesses as they are, and if they're wrong, I can't tell you in what ways they're wrong. Being wrong is hard to think about. Counterfactuals are hard to think about, but we need to get comfortable with counterfactuals and to a feeling of degree of wrongness. Schultz says that we wrongly emphasize wrongness in school. Quote, so by the time you are nine years old, you've already learned that people who get stuff wrong are lazy, irresponsible dimwits. Second of all, the way to succeed in life is never make any mistakes, end quote. We equate wrong with being bad. Being wrong means lower grades in school. It means isolation. It means being that kind of a kid. And these expectations creep into the teacher's lounge and they creep into our lives. We learn these lessons really well, Schultz says. But being wrong is totally rational. Mobison asks, what's it mean to be rational? Quote, that your beliefs map accurately to the world. That's a real challenge because the world is constantly changing and requires you to change your own views, end quote. If the facts change, you need to change your mind. You were wrong, now you're right. How in the world do we do this? How do we get comfortable with being in the wrongness? Two ideas come to mind. Part of the reason that Anson Dorrance succeeded as a soccer coach is that he trains his team to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. If they're running late, that's not a problem. His teams are late all the time. You tired on the soccer field? Not a problem. His team's conditioned ruthlessly. Is there a 50-50 ball in the box where you need to make a collision? Not a problem. That's his favorite drill, and they run it all the time. Dorrance weaves this comfort with uncomfortable situations through his progress of his team, and you can weave that into your own progress and get comfortable feeling wrong. You don't want to create a knee-jerk reaction. You don't want to yell at someone. You want to figure out what, if you're wrong. And the second thing is, is you want to move. You want to adapt. You want to change. As Barry Ritholtz says, you can be wrong, but you can't stay wrong. Know the feeling of wrongness. Be comfortable there, but move quickly without panic. You need to adapt. The history of Coca-Cola is an entire history of adaptation. Coca-Cola began as a patent medicine. All sizzle, no steak. Then it was a pick-me-up beverage, both steak and sizzle. When people thought there might be too much pick-me-up, pick maybe it was the caffeine, or maybe the sugar, or the cocaine derivative, 
it was branded as a refreshing beverage, then it was branded as an American beverage, and so on down the line. Coca-Cola was something until it was wrong to be that thing and then Coca-Cola evolved in name and in formula because the times are a-changing. Coke succeeded by adapting. Charlie Munger says this about the Berkshire Hathaway success. Quote, it is remarkable how much long-term advantage we have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent, end quote. Munger, I think, recognizes that they were wrong at small points, and they didn't panic, and they simply adapted. They changed out of being wrong. This is another thing that is easy to talk about, but not so easy to live. Mobison says, quote, in life, consistency is valued as a good thing. If you're changing your view, you're called a flip-flopper. In investing, if you're doing the right thing, that's what you need to do, end quote. So you need to be willing and able and open to change and adaptation, but uh, it's not always going to be the easiest thing to do. So how do you tell if you are a wonderful story-making machine and telling a fairy tale versus if you're accurately describing how the world is? How do you come up with counterfactuals that help you determine where your outcome is in a range of outcomes? Well, we already talked about one way to do this, and that's to find the outside view, to find the base rate, to let the numbers guide you. Andy Grove's Intel saw this when they saw that the price of Japanese computer chips was way below what they could charge, and so they had to make a change. Coca-Cola saw this when Pepsi's market share crept up, and they knew that their story they were telling themselves about Coca-Cola had to change. Google saw this when they uh, noticed Yahoo's search numbers were favoring them, and they knew the story was about to change. Sometimes the numbers will tell you if you're telling yourself the wrong story, if you have a counterfactual that's more true than what you believe. Sometimes it can't be a number and has to be a person. We call that person the devil's advocate. Anson Dorrance has it in his assistant soccer coach. Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz are each other's devil's advocate. Bob Seawright talks about it at his investing firm. Stanley McChrystal calls uh, devil's advocates crucial to war games. It's also part of being a genius. We are wonderful storytelling machines. The problem is, is that we tend to tell creative narratives that look only at the most visible actions and miss things that matter but are harder to see. To recap what we talked about, number one, know the pot, the amount you can win, and know the odds of the payout coming to you. Figuring out these two things through some pretty elementary mathematics can help your decision making a lot. Number two, incentives matter. Everyone is motivated by incentives and you need to figure out what the incentives are for different people. Number three, the inside and the outside views are powerful things to combine to get an accurate description of what's going to happen. You need to consider what you know about a kitchen remodel and what your neighbor knows about that same remodel. And number four, we tend to be wonderful storytelling machines. We like to think we can explain away anything after it happens, no matter how coincidental it may be. We need to fight this urge and do the heavy mental lifting, come up with counterfactuals and start with base rates and avoid this bias that we tend to have. Thanks for listening to episode 32 of Mike's Notes.
place to thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave and take your book with you. 